Well, we're in a, an interesting section of Genesis. There's a lot of names this week and next week. And it's one of those, it's one of those sections that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're reading through your Bible, you might kind of skip through. But uh, I want us to think about uh, a few things over the next couple of weeks. I want us to think uh, about, um, maybe you've asked this question before. You've read in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 this great uh, creation that God has made. And then you see Genesis 3 uh, and you think, why in the world did it go down this way? And so we're going to think about that over the next uh, two weeks. And especially, you know, we look around the world and we see, you know, even more of the impacts of the fall uh, around us. And we think, why would it go this way? And uh, we want to consider that in the midst of, of all these names uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so let's uh, pray and ask for God's help as we do that this morning. Indeed, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great love with which you loved us. Um, Father, even as we think about the, the turmoil around us that we see, even as we think about the turmoil in our own lives, uh, Father, we are uh, at the same time grateful and thankful that you are faithful uh, to your promises. And as we cling to that, uh, Father, we pray that you would encourage us. We pray that as we look at your word, that uh, your spirit would help us to understand it. Uh, but even more than that, Father, help us to apply it to our lives, that we might leave this place encouraged as your children or challenged uh, in our thinking. And we pray, Father, above all else, that your spirit working through your word would help us to look more like Jesus. So we pray that you might work in us the transformation that you so desire for us. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. Help us to cling to you more tightly. Help us to enjoy your love more fully. That it might delight our hearts. As we saw last week, that, that sin might begin to taste bad. Because your love is so delightful to us. Uh, give us a taste for your goodness. And would you take a few moments just in your own heart, don't say anything out loud, but just pray that God would speak to you this morning through His Word. And then, uh, you know, I ask you this every week, you'd think I would have it down by now, but just pray for me. Uh, pray that God would speak through me what He wants to say. Father, we are needy. Uh, this, this is a, a massive waste of time, Father, if Your Spirit does not come and, and nurture our hearts. So would You please take Your Word and, and plant it deep within us that it might bear fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of transformation. We need your help, Father. And we just pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Mandy and I have lived here almost 20 years, and uh, we've lived in several different houses. 
Uh, people keep selling their houses while we're in them, so we have to keep moving. Uh, but I remember about 15 years ago, uh, in one of the houses we were in at the time, our, the washing machine broke. And I thought, oh, come on, how, how, how difficult can it be to repair a washing machine, right? So I pulled the washing machine out, I opened it up, uh, and I started looking around and I said, okay, I, I think I understand the problem. You know, Google, YouTube helped a little as well. And like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing here. So I started, uh, I got in there, started, you know, messing around with things. And guess what I did? I broke something else. <laughs> and so eventually, after thinking that I knew what I was doing and discovering that I really didn't, I had to call the manufacturer. And I had to say, look, I've messed this up. Can you please help me? Because you understand this machine, right? You built it. So can you please help me understand what I've done and how to make it right. Now, maybe you've experienced that before. Maybe you've experienced with a car or with a, a computer, or maybe you've experienced with a, an appliance, or maybe you've experienced it just in your life in general. You thought, okay, I've got this. I understand this. I know what I'm doing here. And you've come to the place where you've realized, wait a minute, I've made a right mess of this. I didn't really understand this the way I thought I did. And you've looked for someone to call out to, to say, hey, can you help me to make this right? We, we sing this song, uh, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. You ever felt that? The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. Now, we've all felt that to some degree, that this idea that, that I can do this, I've got this, and then we go ahead and we realize, hold on a minute, this didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. This didn't turn out the way I thought. And this episode in Genesis 4 represents man's first attempt to try to live life apart from their creator, God. Then this is the first attempt uh, of man trying to live life on his own apart from God. And we are thousands and thousands of years removed from this, and we've seen how that effort has ended up. Cain, or Adam and Eve, back in Genesis 3, were removed from the garden. Cain was removed from God's very presence. And here in chapter 4, we're going to see this downward spiral continue. Continue from what, what we might graciously call naivete in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are duped by the serpent, to in chapter 4 and Cain just outright unrepentance to complete defiance by the time we get to Lamech at the end of chapter 4. The author is showing us how this, uh, this acid of sin is spreading through all of humanity as we move toward Noah uh, a little bit further on in the end of 5 and into chapter 6. Sin is moving through the human race like a wildfire. But as we'll see, 
At the end of our text for today, we are not left without hope. It's not as if God has abandoned humanity to their sin. There is a glimmer of hope that we see at the end of our verses today. So again, over the next two weeks, I want us to to consider a little bit what God is doing as we move through these early chapters of Genesis we, we, we've seen, uh, as we, we'll see today, uh, we, we don't see progress. We, we see the opposite. We see regress morally. And as we look at society around us, we see the same thing today. So I want us to think about this morning the problem that we run into when we attempt to live life apart from God. When we attempt to do life without God, and here's the problem, when we attempt to do life apart from God, we experience it's ultimately a dead-end street. It doesn't deliver on the promise. It doesn't deliver what we are hoping for. Make no mistake, uh, it it is in our nature isn't it? It's in our nature to attempt to live life apart from God, to to attempt to live life without the restraints of a creator to whom we are responsible. And this is the first place we see it in Genesis 4. Cain's departure from God uh, is both a sentence, a punishment, and a choice. So he is banished from God's presence But he refuses to repent. He doesn't turn back in repentance. He carries on. And he seeks to become self-sufficient. Look at verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived And bore Enoch, which means new beginning. Cain is making a new start away and without God. He's making a new start all on his own. And look what he does. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. This is a new beginning. Here we are, we're setting out, we're charting our course apart from God, no longer shackled. By any responsibility to a creator, we are our own boss. And in response to the the banishment that Cain uh, experiences from God's presence, he's going to build a city. And he's going to build a city because cities afford protection and provision. Remember, Cain is a fugitive. He feels like he's got people around him that want to kill him. And so he's going to establish a fortress where he won't be harmed, where he'll feel safe and he'll feel secure. And remember, the land is no longer going to yield its fruit to Cain. And so he needs to establish a place where his needs can be met, where he can meet his needs. Protection and provision. Two things that Cain desperately needs at this moment. But rather than repent and seek God for those things, he decides to set out on his own. Now look, 
cities are not bad in themselves. I mean, when God gives Adam and Eve the command to multiply and fill the earth, there's no, uh, there's no reason, there's no command in there to not build uh, a city, right? It's the same in chapter 10 and 11. It's not bad in itself. The problem and the reputation that cities take on as we move throughout the scripture is that cities are places that are often built to retreat from God. There are places that are often established in the absence of God to try to remove a sense of responsibility from God. Certainly we see that as we move uh, through uh, the book of Revelation. We see, the, the, we see uh, Babylon uh, that is representative uh, of a group of people who are seeking to throw uh, the shackles of God off of them. And look, we share this same tendency ourselves. We share this tendency to look for protection and provision, those things that we need to look for them in what we can do outside of God. So, so, so we, uh, we build all kinds of edifices that we hope can bear uh, the weight of those things that we need protection and provision. Uh, we look to jobs or, or we look to maybe relationships to give us a sense of protection or we look to our bank accounts and we hope that those things will give us the protection and the provision that we desperately need and desire. As we move through the story in verses 18 to 22, we're going to see the development of something else, the, the development of, of culture and technology, that there's this hope of progress within this city that Cain is building in the absence of God. So look at verse 18. To Enoch was born Ered, and Ered fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael followed, uh, fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. And then look, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we see the development of, of animal domestication here. Uh, now, remember back, Abel uh, had sheep, but this is a little more broad uh, this is the domestication that we're starting to see, the domestication of other animals as well uh, with this particular person, Jabal. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see the development of music here in chapter 4. In verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So we see the beginning of technology in the sense of metal uh, and, and metal works here in these verses. Now, again, these aren't bad things in themselves, right? I mean, goodness, certainly we appreciate culture and art. We appreciate technology. Uh, I mean, we appreciate medicine and the internet and, you know, we appreciate these developments. Indoor plumbing, I mean, goodness, you're grateful for indoor plumbing, aren't you? Uh, the point of the text is not to decry enterprise uh, or art or anything like that. But here's what we know about sin. Sin corrupts good things. Sin corrupts neutral things as well. 
for its own end. And so these things become bad as men idolize these things. As men, uh, as men idolize progress by looking to these things to do for them what God wants to do for them. Looking to these things as hope, for hope in the face of difficulty. And again, we face the same temptation, don't we? We face the same temptation to, to look to progress, to look to technology, to do for us, to give us the hope, to give us something to cling to, uh, a sense of security for the future. We do the same thing in terms of looking to those things, to do for us what God wants to do for us. And the end result of this The end result of this attempt is not more righteousness and justice. The end result of this is less righteousness and justice. Culture and technology, no matter how useful they might be, cannot offer redemption or escape. So consider... How this, how this culminates in Lamech. Uh, again, verses 23 and 24, uh, we see this poem of Lamech, this, this chant or this taunt song uh, of, of Lamech. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech kind of climaxes this section as sin spreads through Cain's descendants. He's more violent, he's more wicked than Cain by a factor of 10, isn't he? Like literally, uh, if uh, if Cain's revenge uh, if his vengeance is sevenfold, my vengeance is even worse. It's 10 times, 11 times as great. He's even more wicked than Cain. So Cain gave in to sin, but Lamech exalts in sin. Cain looks for protection, but Lamech provokes violence in this poem. This isn't better. This isn't progress. It's worse. So we have in Lamech a couple of things. We, we have in Lamech, first, the distortion of God's ideal in marriage. Remember, God established marriage as the, 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 the union of one man and one woman. But here, Lamech has two wives. And so he distorts the ideal of marriage, And we see as we move through the book of Genesis, we see the disastrous precedent that this sets. But not only does he distort marriage, he distorts justice. I mean, in his taunt song here, he speaks of killing a young lad who merely wounded him. That's not just, is it? In the law, we see later an eye for an eye. But this is disproportionate. Cain is so violent that he's going to kill for merely receiving a wound. And see, our culture tells us if we can just jettison God, 
We can see uh, improvement and we can see more justice. But what we see here is the opposite. Because attempts at life without God take us further away, not closer to righteousness and justice. Because, here's the reason, sin always turns us inward and makes us selfish. The advance of sin doesn't create more ultimate concern for other people. The advance of sin creates less concern for other people and more concern for ourselves. See, without a center, without a center to whom we can all turn outward and look to, everyone becomes their own center. And so my highest ideal is the pursuit of what is best for me. And I can say, look, okay, I'm going to try to do good to you, but I'm only going to do good to you insofar as it suits me. Because that's what sin does. It turns us in on ourselves. And so think about the morality, the decline in morality that we see from Cain to Lamech, the, the decline in morality that we see around us. Now, and, and look, I'm not saying that everyone in Cain's line was horrible. I don't think the text is making that argument. Nor am I making the, the, the argument that an atheist can't be moral. I am saying, though, that in a naturalistic environment, there's no philosophical reason for an atheist to be moral. And what we see when we look around us is that sin turns us inward and makes us selfish. And so some people would make the argument, yeah, but we've just kind of evolved as a society, and so we've evolved this standard of morality, to which I would say, yes, but that is inherently self-centered and selfish because it's about our survival. Sin always turns us inward and it makes us selfish. The, the gospel, the work of the Spirit in us, does the opposite. It turns us outward. And so there is no ethic of sacrificial love apart from Christianity, apart from the God of the Bible who works in us to turn us outward in sacrificial love. So what's the solution to this problem of living without God? How do we escape this cul-de-sac? If this is a dead-end street, how do we escape it? Our ultimate life and hope are only found as we live in the light of God, our creator, the one who made us. See, there's a second line that begins to form in verses 25 and 26. And it forms in the text in contrast to the line of Cain. This is another group, which we'll see in 25 and 26, begin calling upon the name of the Lord. Look at what he says. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for, for me another offspring. Incidentally, that's the word seed. Remember back in Genesis 3, the promise that God would raise up a seed from the woman who would crush the serpent's head. 
God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for King killed him. And to Seth was also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a, a second line that stands in contrast to the first. Uh, even though very likely these guys all lived side by side or, or, or knew each other. They're, they're, they're separated in the text in a linear point of view, but these lines are, 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 are increasing and developing together side by side. And incidentally, uh, this doesn't mean that everyone in Seth's line was righteous or without sin. In the same way, not necessarily everyone in Cain's line was horrible. Uh, what we're doing here, though, is contrasting Cain and his line living apart from God and Seth and his line seeking God, seeking to live with God as they call upon him. And so we're going to develop this line as we move forward towards Noah. And it's going to culminate in another Enoch in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, who walked with God and God took him. This is a, a line, this line from Seth that is going to live in the light of God. They're going to live with God and seek him. And what we see as we end in 26 that this is the, the first shoot of spiritual growth. It's, it's this seed of hope. Maybe this is the way God will overcome the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And what makes them distinct is that last line of 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That phrase is used throughout the scriptures to speak of taking hold of God, calling out to him for deliverance, trusting in him, aligning yourself with him, worshiping him, hoping in him. And this is what these people begin to do. Not living life apart from God as if he doesn't exist and they can do it on their own, but clinging to him in hope for what he might do. And so we are reminded here at the end of this spiral of sin, we are reminded that God is not finished with humanity. That God's plan for humanity is not dead. That there is this seed, and we're to be reminded of that promise in Genesis 3, that God is still at work. And so we, through this text, are reminded that our only hope, in this life and in the next, that our only hope is found in living as if God exists and clinging to him for everything. Because here's what we know from your experience and my experience. We know that sin never delivers on its promises. Sin doesn't deliver on its promises. Life, as we live it, always exposes our frailty and our weakness, doesn't it? We, we, can, we, we can think that we have it all under control until life reminds us that we don't. I don't know if you remember, two years ago, there was this little virus that started going around 
It impacted the whole world. And all of us realized really quickly how little control we actually had over our life and our circumstances. See, we need something bigger to cling to, something more certain, a life anchored to something more constant. Because the reality is that that the imaginations and the dreams that we have for our lives are ultimately too small. That God wants to do something bigger than we can imagine. We, We simply don't know what's best for us, even though we think we do. But God does because he made us. He made us for a purpose. He knows what's best for us. And he loves us. Listen, he loves us more than we love ourselves. And living in this way, the Bible calls wisdom. Wisdom is just skill in living. And the Bible says that wisdom begins with realizing that there is a God and that we are not him. That's where wisdom, skill in living, that's where it begins. In realizing that there is a God and seeking to live with him in mind. This is the path to life, Proverbs tells us. The opposite of that in Proverbs is the fool who doesn't believe that, who feels that he knows what is best, and that ultimately leads to death. It's the message of Ecclesiastes, right? We looked at Ecclesiastes a few years back, that this confusing life makes more sense if we live it in the light of God's coming judgment and deliverance. That God is working things towards an appointed end. And that is the only way that this confusing, difficult life only makes sense. Or makes sense. We have the bold claims of Jesus. In John chapter 5. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Remember in Matthew 7 when Jesus painted that vivid picture of two roads. One road was wide. It was easy. It was the road of Cain. Hey, live your life without God. You can do it. You can handle it. And Jesus said that way ends in death. But there's another road. It's the road of Seth. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Living as if he is God. And it leads to life. This is what we see. So how do we arrest this downward fall and find life in the place of death? Don't fall for the lie that we can live life without God. We can't. Not in any ultimate sense. Instead, pursue life with him. See, that's the path to ultimate life, fixing our our eyes, fixing our hope on what we cannot see. 
Now, to be sure, that's not easy because it does make certain demands of us. If there is a creator God, then I'm accountable to him. And so it does uh, make certain demands of us as we live in the light of God's presence. It demands trust for one. Matthew chapter 10, 39, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It demands the conviction that if God says something is good for us, it is good for us, even if we don't understand it. It demands that trust and that conviction. It demands that we walk by faith and not sight as we look to what is ultimate. This is what Abraham did in Hebrews chapter 11. He looked forward to the city that was unseen, the city that God was building for him. And it's an act of faith to believe all that, isn't it? It's an act of faith to put your trust in the hands of a God that you cannot see. But all those demands are for our good. They're for our good. And, and this is why, the look, we say it all the time here. This is why the ordinary means of grace are so important in the life of a believer. These, these things, the, the Bible and prayer and the community of faith, these are the normal ways that God reminds us of what we cannot see. And this is why we need them. Because they stimulate and grow and encourage our faith. They help us to call upon the Lord and all that that entails in a world in which counterfeits abound. Looking for fulfillment in life apart from the one who has given you life is ultimately a dead-end street. Sin never delivers what it promises. And most of us in this room, many of us have experienced that. And we know that life is only found as we look to God. So don't fall for the lie that, that, that you know what is best. Instead, pursue your life. Find your life in Christ. The good news, our imagination and a dream for our life is too small. The good news, though, is that God and his gospel loves you more than you love yourself. And he calls you to something deeper and better than what you could imagine if you'll trust him. I was reminded of a film review that I recently read. Uh, the film was called Infinite Storm. And it's the story, uh, it's the story of a hiker who had gone up a mountain in the midst of a terrible storm in order to end his life. He was going to go up this mountain in this storm and then succumb to the elements and end his life. But in the end, he is practically dragged back down the mountain by another hiker who found him. And said, I'm not going to let you do this. And got him down the mountain. And he later wrote a letter to this hiker who was called Pam. Uh, he, he wrote a letter to the, the group, the hiking group that she was a part of. And he said this. He said, I didn't matter to me. But I did to Pam. 
And in uh, reviewing the film, the author, Brett McCracken, he, he said, uh, he said uh, how often is that true of sinners pursued by a gracious God? Somehow, even as self-absorbed as we are, we matter to ourselves far less than we matter to God. It reminds me of something Shane Morris wrote years ago. Sometimes we need a hand there to curtail our freedoms, to override our self-will, and to tell us that life is still worth living when our imaginations fail. And without the intervention and care of others, our imaginations will inevitably fail. Ultimate life and hope are only found in the one who made you and called you for a purpose. So will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, you are good. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your unfailing love. We thank you that you are a God who pursues. Father, we think that we know ourselves. We think that we love ourselves. And yet, Father, we, we see in your word that you know us more, that you love us more. So, Father, we pray that we would look to you. We pray that we would trust you. Father, if there are any here today who are uh, feeling the effects of trying to live life away from you, apart from you, Father, would today be the day they would turn to Jesus and say, enough. I give myself. I want this gift of life that Jesus offers. Maybe they would trust in him and be redeemed and rescued that you might accomplish in them what you want for them. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.